Hey, this is Marx, and you're listening to Into This. Into This is my podcast. Welcome again. In this podcast, I interview artists usually, and we talk about contemporary arts and their careers and how they got to where they are. I had the pleasure to have a conversation with New York City-based artist David Kramer. I met David in 2019, early 2019, in an art fair back in Montreal, and we connected. That is very evident in this interview. This interview is very giggly. There's a lot of uh, giggles and it's a fun interview. It's a really happy interview. Although the, the topics that we talk about are, you know, as serious as you can get in the arts. And I loved it. I really enjoyed it. We, I, I felt like we connected. We actually locked in. And usually I try to cut down my interviews to 45 minutes. Sorry, Michael. <laughs> This one is really long. And yeah, I, I hope that it comes through. I hope that whoever listens to these things get the sense that people like David, artists like David, definitely feel like they are doing it honestly, right? So they're not trying to get any superficial gratifications. Although he did say that he really loves to get the instant gratification back from Instagram. So... <laughs> There's that. But other than that, I think it was a really soulful uh, and honest conversation, which uh, I really, really enjoyed. And um, I think it comes through. So a few things about David. He went to George Washington University for his undergrad, and then he moved to Pratt Institute for his MFA. He's originally from Manhattan. Then, as you will hear, he moved out to the suburbs of New York City then went out to Washington, D.C. to do uh, his BFA, as I said, in uh, George Washington University. And then he came back to New York City. This is one of those interviews and one of those pieces that if you really like art history, recent art history, you know what happened in the 90s and in the late 80s in New York City, you're going to love this one. So he has stories about why Jerry Saltz never liked him. So if you want to know that, that's, uh, that's part of this interview, as well as uh, why is it important to choose between one MFA program versus another one. Um, American politics, we go into that a lot, and Canadian as well. I think he actually tapped into a Canadian sensibility back in the 2000s. He was working a lot with Canadian institutions and, and spaces, and so he's pretty well known in Canada as well. As I said, I really, really enjoyed talking to David. And this is also very new for the podcast. It's, a, it's an interview that has been at distance and probably we're going to keep doing that more. I mean, it's possible. People are used to using this technology and they're not afraid of it. And I'm not afraid of the sound quality either. <laughs> so in his work, David reflects a lot of uh, his take on America in general. I think there's a lot of uh, Americana inspiration in, in his pieces. In his most recent body of work, he questions a lot of the political elements that were front and center for the past administration for Donald Trump. That's an interesting thing too. We connected just one day after Joe Biden was sworn in. <laughs> That was such an interesting thing to, to do because... He was very active and, and not only active by commenting or, you know, posting things regarding 
dissent, I guess, uh, dissenting from the political environment, but also his work. His work has a lot of elements of that. And as he shared with me, uh, he has been exploring that since his early days in the art world, not only with uh, politics, but also criticizing how the art world works. And because of that, he thinks that perhaps he has made one or two enemies in the art world, such as the name of uh, Jerry Saltz, for instance. <laughs> That's an interesting story. And so I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of honesty and there's a lot of self-reflection in his work. And there's always that conversation happening in his mind regarding how much of his work is actually himself and how much of his work is a character that he likes to to think that is saying all those things. So it was a really great opportunity for me to talk to David and I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. I know that it's a little bit long, so you can you can take it in and, you know, two, three walks outside, socially distanced walks uh, alone in the cold. So I hope that this helps a little bit passing time and uh, I hope that you guys enjoy this as much as I did. Thank you for listening. All right, this is me talking to David Kramer. Awesome, how's it going? Uh, it's going good. It's yeah. going good, you know. We have a new president, so uh, that's a nice thing. <laughs> I was gonna say, you, you you said in your email, like let's let's try to avoid politics, and like I I can't. <laughs> right, of course. I just said I didn't say let's avoid politics. I said if we talked about politics, it would be a whole conversation. Oh, we well, wouldn't talk about anything else. Let, let's so, get into it. <laughs> I said you'd have to do two separate Zoom. Meetings. One would be about whatever you want to talk about with my work, and the other would be about politics. That, that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, how does it feel? Do you feel like two hundred pounds has been weighted off your back? Yeah, the gorilla in the room is uh, right. is no longer here. Well, you know, it's really. Um, I mean, honestly, uh, what with the insurrection that we had, I've never seen that in my life. So, obviously, yeah, there's a big sigh of relief. I mean, we all knew that this guy was out there trying to uh, not relinquish his power from the minute he got power. But uh, yeah, I think it was, uh, it was real. And so it feels great. I, I was not, a, I'm not like a huge Joe Biden supporter. I was right. not, he was not my candidate, but in some ways, honestly, he's probably the perfect person for this role because he's just sort of, so middle of the road. He's so yeah. he's like a throwback to the 1990s. You know, he's the throwback. And I think that's what probably might help the country ease into something more normal. For right sure. Now. No, it, it, so, it sounds like um, stability, right? So that's what, what America needed the most. And, and I think that's probably what Joe Biden has, you know, the more to offer. Yeah. I mean, to me, like, I'm like a one issue person. Like I was like, you know, we need healthcare for everybody. Cause yeah. once you have that, you can build a society around that. You know, at least you can have a, a floor for everybody that we all can start from, whether you're poor or not, you can start from that place and build yourself. Uh, but we're not going to get that with Joe Biden. So that's right. what we are going to get is stability. Right. Right. Stability. right. No, but still, I mean, I think, um, I don't know if, if you relate to this, but back in 2015, I remember when, when Donald Trump was, you know, talking about being uh, the candidate for the presidency and all of that. And I, I honestly thought it was a joke. 
And for the longest time yeah. when he was even, um, you know, campaigning and all of that and saying crazy things that I thought, okay, so this is a, a commercial stint. Like for him, it's like a, you know, he wants sure. to get the attention and all of that. But then it became really evident that it was so dangerous because it was so appealing, right? Yeah. For like, you know, as you said, like the uh, insurrection, it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from like all those years of like, you know, lies, basically, right? And so, well, listen, let me just say that, like, I come from a family, like my, my uh, grandparents uh, left Eastern Europe. They went to Cuba, where my mother was born. They ran from Cuba, well, before the revolution, but they came to the United States. But they had so many friends who stayed in Cuba. My whole childhood, I spent thinking, when do we, when are we supposed to run? Like, when do we know that it's time to run away? Because we have to keep moving to the next place. I mean, that was the survival skills they because most of my grandfather's family, most of, almost all of it was totally obliterated in Europe after he left. Right. And so, you know, I was waiting for this moment, like when is it time? And when Trump ran in 2016, I was not surprised at all that he won. Yeah. I was not happy about it, but I was not surprised at all. In fact, I was less than happy about it. I was, you know, to me, it was like a symbol of like, privilege like you could be so bad right. and yet you're wealthy and white and you can pay no price yeah. and you can benefit and that's you know so that's so i'm not surprised that he came out i'm i am surprised that he never lost the support of the people that he never helped yeah but those people were not what they really all wanted it seemed was a grievance something to complain about just seeing the support, I wonder if there's something to rescue on the fact that, you know, people feel really disenfranchised, right? I mean, like they feel like politicians, like quote unquote regular politicians don't represent them. And, you know, like there's yeah. perhaps something to really, you know, consider about that because it's, it, it is impossible otherwise, right? Like it's impossible to have right. such a strong movement without feeling like you're being left out. And so, you know, that's one of the aspects that can be rescued from that. But uh it's dangerous nonetheless, right? Yeah. So it's democracy, which is like the <laughs> the base of the well, I uh, agree with you. Western society. I mean, if, right? if Trump had come into power mm -hmm. and he had decided that he was going to rebuild the infrastructure of the, of the country, he was going to say, okay, I'm a, which is totally untrue, but I'm a great builder. I built New York. I'm a great builder. We're going to build the whole country like we built New York. We're going to start highways. We're going to build new airports. We're going to build. And all of a sudden, like everybody had a job, which, you know, we had tons of jobs. The, the, the economy was doing very well with him. But if he had those jobs that they could relate right to him with his, uh, you know, workforce, the Trump troops, the Trump court, he would never have been removed from power. And, you know, it's to me as a Jewish person, I joke. It was like the 11th plague. We needed the 11th plague to finally let us go from <laughs> right. the, the Pharaoh, from Trump. If we didn't have COVID, he would have been reelected. That was my segue. Like, I think, honestly, I think that he would have. Yeah. It, like, I think COVID just made so evident that he was so incompetent in a way that yes. only death could probably show it, you know? Yes. I mean, you combine that with with this uh, George Floyd social justice reform, which happened to dovetail right with COVID. They all happened at the same time. It was like too much. And yet he still got 
millions and millions and millions of votes. So. Yeah, for sure. But um, I mean, I, I think that COVID was the catalyst of that just because if yeah. you remember what happened in Charlottesville, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it was a moment that it was like a, of similar influence and impact to society. However, it didn't really create that really huge movement that perhaps people feeling this stress and anxiety of COVID or a pandemic, you know, uh, it, it really yeah. like, you know, lit it up. And I think, you know, without the pandemic, we would be uh, in the same kind of like situation with uh, yeah. with, with yeah, the he would have been administration. Mm -hmm. I totally think so. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I think he could have insured himself. You know, the one funny thing, and like I said, we could keep going and going about Trump. <laughs> but the one funny thing is that, like, I also think that, you know, he came into power and he said right away, he let it be known right away that he wanted to have a dynasty. And he wanted to have like him to be in power and then like Ivanka and then his children follow him. And this would just be like this, you know, like he viewed. And yet, like I said before, like if he had created like instead of giving the tax cuts to the wealthy, if he had said, well, we're going to do that. But what we're going to do is help all the other people that voted for me. He would have had a dynasty that would have been impenetrable. Yeah. Yeah, and he yeah. still had a dynasty. There's still people that showed up to break the law, tear down the try to tear down the Capitol because they they believed in him. And now they're all running away from him because America does not like losers. <laughs> so. That's right. That's right. That's right. He he'll be the he first one to say that. <laughs> yeah. So he lost, and now they're all the Proud Boys are running away. They're all leaving him. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that he's I do think the most important thing that really saved the United States in the last two weeks, honestly, was him being removed from Twitter. I think like so. if he could have still been tweeting and rallying people up yeah. and, and revving up the engines, who knows where we would have been in the last two weeks. True, true. Um, there's also something to to think about the the power that those companies have right now, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like obviously in this case is beneficial for you know one sector of the society, but it's something to that, that America needs to think about, like how yeah. you know how much power those those companies, and which are like private companies, right? That that's the actual, um, I guess, benefit in this case that they can just do whatever they want, and people can sure. complain about the First Amendment being a stepped over but it's not really i mean you can decide what to do with those things right it's, it's no it's of private. course it's a private company they have the mm -hmm. right to do whatever they want there's no yeah. there's no rights and you know because if they can kick you out of a store if you come in and yell something no one wants you to hear they say get out you're never shopping here but you know yeah these are monopolies these are monopolies that are bigger than the united states they're monopolies that are yeah. global and uh yeah their power is insane and yeah. the funny part about it is their power is in the hands of these people who are like 38 years old and like, you know, were like good at one thing, got them into Harvard and then they right. went on to, you know, they're good at computer programming That's right. and, you know, had a vision and then they're suddenly like deciding things for the whole world. It's, it's really kind of crazy. They're not, the reason what, the thing that makes America such a great country when it's great is that it's a country where when things are good, People, when you're sitting at a table and you're discussing a new idea, you have a black guy, a Jewish guy, an Indian guy, and uh, everybody's sitting there talking and we create things that are have perspectives from all these different places, as opposed to like another country 
Canada is not a good example because Canada is very good at this also. But another country where, say, you're in Sweden, everybody at that table essentially right. is a Swedish person who grew up with a similar kind of background. They don't have the same kind right. of perspectives that create what makes American ingenuity so great. But the problem with America is we never recognize that. We always just think we're obviously a white man's country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's how mm -hmm. we've been ran for years. So. Yeah, and and I think it gets confusing because of what you said. I mean, like I think uh, diversity is really visible, yeah. but in reality, in the the you know when you look at perhaps the corporate positions and and the power positions and and right. you know the decision making positions, you will find like a you know a very mostly um, white guys. <laughs> it, well, yeah, exactly. Like the gap between the the, the actual town and and you know the tower. Yeah. They're making the decisions is really wide, right? Yeah. So I, I think I think that's true. But I think it also happens in Canada a lot, a lot, yeah. a lot. And specifically back in, in Quebec, I think it's a it's a lot more uh, evident. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Quebec is uh I mean I no disregard I love uh Quebec, I love Montreal, I love oh, that city. For sure. But I do think that what how do I say this? I did a show the first time I did a show. I was in a group show in Montreal that was curated by David Liss and by mm -hmm. a guy named John Massier. It was at this, at then the Sadie Bronfman Center. I forget what they call that now, but then there was an art gallery. And they had invited like 10 artists from Ontario and 10 artists from Quebec. And then I was the only non-Canadian who was in the show because I had been showing in Canada, I had made inroads. And so I was invited to be in the show. And I remember going to the opening and this was like in 1999. Right. And the Quebec people and the Ontario people would not talk to each other. Oh. It was like they just turned their back on each other. <laughs> and yet, like I, because I was American, I mm -hmm. was talking to French speakers who would try to speak English. I don't speak French. They tried to speak English to me, but right. they would not do that for the people from <laughs> Ontario. It was, like, <laughs> it was like pretending they weren't in the room. And I yeah. think that just tells you about the sort of severity yeah. of this sort of like you know, provincialism. You That's know. true. I mean, yeah. Canada has this funny, I mean, obviously you call your states provinces. You have a provincial kind of <laughs> attitude about each of those provinces. I'm not trying to say that you're a provincial country, but I am saying that there is a provincialness to Canada. Yeah. yeah. That exists in America. We have states, we have regions. I totally think that Canada and the United States mirror each other quite a bit but mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. but uh that is what i noticed very starkly there because i was an outsider no no i think you're you're right and, and i think obviously there's a language barrier that they yeah. need to you know navigate at the same time of course there's like cultural differences and like the historical you know everything that i guess works against unifying that yeah. uh, section. But no, uh, going back to, to your comment on on the differences or I guess the similarities of Canada and the States, I think these days um, it's really interesting to see the Conservative Party here in Canada. Yeah. They are like really trying to craft their policies and their message so that it's not so easy for the Liberal Party to say, oh, be careful because you know what happened in the States, it can happen yeah. here too. 
you know and i think yeah. that's going to be really interesting in the next years because it's a it's such a it's been such a clear example of what a bad management can do so it's uh it's going to be interesting but le let me go back so you said that your mom was born in cuba yeah she was oh. uh, born in havana grew up uh, there till she was about just about five or six years old and then her family moved on to Brooklyn. Right. That's okay. She, that's, so she grew up. She came. She learned to read. Her first language was Spanish. She mm -hmm. came to New York and uh, in you know the 19, late in the mid 30s, and right. uh, she grew up here. Her and her sister were both born there. They had another sister when they when they got here. But uh, yeah, I grew up in a house that was. Uh, We spoke Spanish in our house. We, uh, but I'm, I'm, I have terrible. I'm, ter I mean, I speak Spanish, but all my grammar, I speak all in the present tense. That's, <laughs> that's my joke about Spanish. I have a big vocabulary, but I can't say everything is happening right now. Exactly. It's like <laughs> there's no tomorrow or or yesterday. It's just today. <laughs> but my grandparents, uh, they loved. Um, They loved their lives in Cuba. It was much easier for them in some ways than it was yeah. in uh, New York. But the opportunities in New York were better. They had a my grandfather had a brother who had settled right. into New York, and he helped them immigrate here. And uh, right. you know, but he was like a butcher. They had no education. They were you know, and my mother went to college. She she was the first one on her family to go to college. And right. my father's family immigrated from like Eastern Europe, uh, Belarus. They came. A generation before right so they were already living in uh, new york for like 50 years before my right. father or four or 20 years before my father was born 30 years you know they grew they had all they were born my grand great grand my grandparents on his side of the family were born in new york right in, in, in the united states so. amazing so brooklyn you grew up there in brooklyn no 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 i was born in manhattan Okay. And I lived here till I was like five years old. And then we moved to the suburbs. We moved to New Rochelle. I see. Right outside of New York City. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is, this is just a little anecdotal story, but we lived in New Rochelle. First off, I hated living in the suburbs. I, <laughs> as soon as I was aware, I would, my parents both lived, left the city and worked in New York City. They left New Rochelle every day and went to, I was always like, why do you get to go to this? Why do you get to go to New York? <laughs> and I'm stuck here. But we lived like down the street from a country club there was like right up through was a golf course right and uh that golf course did not allow jews to join oh. it was restricted <laughs> really so, i mean it was a very funny you know it was it was just funny it's just indicative about the openness of sort of you know back in the 60s i'm so i was born in 1963 so back right. in like the 60s you know And New Rochelle was considered a progressive community. There was like, we had busing for our schools at a very yeah, early yeah, yeah, time, yeah. but it was not, you know, it was still not progressive. And as a Jewish person, I never, you know, I jokingly never really felt like I was a white person. I always right. felt like I was an outsider. Cause, Interesting. Because of that reason. Yeah, know? no, no, no. I mean, it, it's so crazy to to think that, you know, in, in this spam of like, I don't know, three, two generations like that, it, that was a reality. Yeah, you know exactly that's like it's it's insane i would be lying if i if i uh saying that i don't see it you know of course that uh, you can you can see all of that right now happening you know in not in exactly in the same way but uh, you can see the uh the effects of that shit so you grew up in in uh, new rochelle when do you move out of there 
Well, I I went to New Rochelle. I went to New Rochelle High School, and then right. I went to college, and uh, I never went back. I uh, right. I was a terrible student. I really wanted <laughs> uh, I really wanted to go to uh, NYU because I wanted to be in New York City, but I got rejected, mm. and I got accepted to a school in Washington D.C., George Washington University. So I went to school there. It was kind of a similar kind of school. I don't know how I got in there because it's a very good school now. It wasn't as good then. But uh, yeah, so I went to school in Washington, D.C. And I stayed there for four years. And then I moved to Brooklyn to go to graduate school after that was finished. So so in, in you know, New Rochelle, I, so you're growing up there, you like in high school and stuff. Like when does the art come into your life? How does uh, that happen? Well, I mean, that's a very long story because... I, I like long stories. And this... this, this <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I'm totally uh, dyslexic, you know? Like, I can't... I still can't spell. I still have trouble reading. You know, I don't have trouble reading, but I'm dyslexic. Uh, I was a terrible student. I was just, like, always distracted. I had all this, like, attention issues, whatever. So I was like a terrible student, but I used to just draw all the time. Like I sat in class and just drew doodles all the time in my notebook. Right. I mean, I just drew all the time. That was what I did. Anyway, I loved right. taking art classes. I loved doing art stuff. But my parents were like, uh, they were, you know, like my dad had gone to very good. He graduated from Brooklyn and then he went to... University of Pennsylvania, which is like an Ivy League school. And then he went to Harvard Law School. He was a really smart man. Wow. My mother went to Brooklyn College. She just stayed in Brooklyn. They met afterwards, like five, like a long time after they went to school. But my father had this idea that, uh, that you know, we as, as, as striving middle-class Jews would go to the best school possible and become... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to become a lawyer and go sure. work in, as a lawyer, like for him, like work in his firm. He had a firm with like a couple of partners. It wasn't a very big firm, but he was like, that's, you know, and I had no real vision about what to do with my life. I really didn't. I was drinking beer. I was like, you know, just a kid, you know, I, I loved taking archives. In fact, as a kid, I was like always, you know, even in high school, I took like, I mean, I was such a bad student, but I took like advanced placement art, you know, like I was taking, I was being rewarded by my teachers and my parents. My father was like, you know, oh, you know, you should just always do it. You should paint, you should do it. That's but great. It's, it'd be a great hobby, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> great hobby. but they were, they were rather just, yeah. But right. I went to uh, college And I went to college to study, to go to law school thinking, okay. you know, whatever, study business, economics. I was really interested in economics. I liked it a lot. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, in college, I was getting really good grades in art classes and really right. bad grades and everything else. And then like one day in the middle of my junior year in college, I got my grades for the first semester of the junior year of college. And my I had taken a drawing class and the drawing teacher gave me like a C in drawing. Right. And I was like, why do you give me a C? I was like, the, I could draw. I was like so into the class, but we had to take a, uh, he didn't like my attitude and we had to take an anatomy <laughs> test. Right. And I misspelled everything on the anatomy test. Like, first <laughs> of all, 
he so I went in to see him afterwards and he was like, you you got the worst grade. There were people in our class, he said to me, that didn't speak English that could spell better <laughs> than you. And I said, first off, it was all Latin because it's all like poems. But I said I was like furious yeah. because I could draw the bone. I could do everything, exactly. but I'm also dyslexic. I couldn't spell anyway. But, you know, I didn't, I decided at that point, literally at that point, I just like went home and thought about it all. I went, I was just like, what am I going to do with my life? This means so much more to me than all my C's and D's and all of my business classes. I'm like, and I was like, fuck that guy. Fuck this. <laughs> if I have to do something for the rest of my life, I'm going to become an artist. I'm wow. going to see what that is. I have to find out what that means. So then, you know, like the next day I went, I changed, I had enough, I changed all my classes. I talked to an advisor. I had enough credits from our classes I'd been taking right. to be graduate in the typical four years. And then I called my father. <laughs> <And he laughs> I guess, yeah, yeah that, that was a difficult stopped, conversation, I bet. He stopped yeah. talking to me. My oh, father wow. and I didn't talk to each other almost in, entirely for like, I mean, because I was, I talked to him enough to like persuade him Oh wow! to mm -hmm. continue to support me in school because he was so into this education thing. Right. But I mean, we, so he did, but he was like, you're still going to apply to law school. You're going to take the law school exams, the LSAT. And I made all these bargains and bargains and bargains but I was studying art and I was spending my senior year in college taking advanced classes in painting and sculpture and right. taking like intro to design so I could like catch up on all of the requirements that I had blown off all the way through, like intro to 3D design, like, you know, like color theory. So I'm right. like, I took this like crazy load and I, you know, for the first time in my life, I was like, you know, a great student. I was really loving it. I was enjoying everything about it. And it was really great. See, George Washington University was a was a nice was a good school with a nice art department. But the premise of that school, this art department, was to teach you how to paint the portrait of a senator. Mm -hmm. Like that's like <laughs> what they really wanted. It was all very traditional kind of school, very technique oriented, technical. And I went to like, I remember we had the National Galleries and all the art galleries were free in D.C. So I was always right. like. So the whole time I was there, it's waking up in the morning and going to the National Gallery, going to the Hirshhorn, going to the Corcoran Museum. And I remember saying to a professor there at one point, like, so what's all of those like big, gigantic Motherwell painting? What is that like Jackson Pollock? Like those things are so, like, what are those? Right. Because we're like learning how to paint a bowl of fruit and a portrait of, a, of somebody. And he said, that's just that bullshit they teach you in New York. Oh. So I knew. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. I mean, it's, it's so good because it's, it's probably so motivating for a student to hear that. It's like, yeah. fuck yeah, I want to learn that. <laughs> so I was like, I was like, I got to get back to New York. And I immediately, I mean, I don't think it's the best decision I ever made in my life because right. I think that what I know now applying to graduate school, going to graduate school could be a very strategic mm. tool for mm -hmm. an artist, right. right? You could study with somebody who you can go to Cal arts because you're like, Oh my God, John Baldessari teaches there. Yeah. You know, you could like make decisions based on knowledge. 
Right. But I made a decision to go to New York and learn what it means to be an artist. And I went right away to graduate school, which again, I had to make a bargain with my father. You know, like I was like, I got him to pay for tuition. I had to pay for everything else, mm. living, got jobs, you know, worked my ass off. But uh, yeah, I went to Pratt in Brooklyn and I moved there in 1985. And then I was going to school. That's yeah. really good school. Do you have any siblings? I have two sisters. Yeah, two sisters. Okay, Neither so at, at, at least at least your 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 dad was like, okay, so I have these other two people that I can try to influence into. Are, are there he any? He did not uh, care about them being lawyers. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> so you still he was you like still you could have... be a lawyer too. They, I mean, do you think they heard that and wanted to be a lawyer? Yeah. <laughs> so what what did, did they do care. then? Well, I have a sister who uh, moved, also went to school in D.C., and she right. lives there now. She worked for a while, for a long time, actually, in private as a private investigator, researcher. Right. And now she owns a restaurant, a coffee shop there. Nice. And I have another sister who was very smart in school, did very well, and had got a Ph.D. in forestry, taught ec ecology. Right. She was an ecologist, and she she just retired teaching in... University of Georgia. She wow. retired kind of young because of her family situation, but uh, sure. She, uh, yeah, but she's uh, she was she was a very good, brilliant, you know, brilliant scientist, very smart nice. about. And the college started studying ecology back in the eighties. You know, yeah. back before yeah. it was very fashionable. So that, that that's but, I mean, uh, at least your dad got a, a doctor. I don't know if he's the right kind. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, But. here's a funny story about, this is a really kind of tragic story about my father, though. Is, right. uh, so, I mean, he was a great, listen, my parents were extremely great people, but they were terrible parents. They just did not <laughs> understand how to nurture a child mm -hmm. they were mm -hmm. both involved with their business with what they were doing they were very involved and then they would just sort of send out these edicts about how things were supposed to go but right. um and like i said my father and i really did not talk for mm. like i went the last year of college the first year of graduate school and then the second year of graduate school like right at the beginning i got a job in new york i had many i did a lot of things construction whatever right. but i worked for this artist for a while And she had a show that opened like right around Halloween uh, weekend in New York. Right. And I helped her a lot on the show. And she was super, I mean, I didn't really like her work that much, but I mm -hmm. was super involved with helping her. And she just loved my involvement with this project. Right. And she said to me, she had talked to me enough. She was much older than me. So she talked to me and she was like, with my parent, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, tell your father to come to the opening of the show. So it was mm -hmm. on a Thursday night. He comes to the opening, which I had helped her really in so many ways, make her show whatever it was, not to say that it was just me, but I'm just telling you, I was so involved. And then she right. cornered my father, told him, You have to, this guy is like, has talent. He's a mm -hmm. really, he knows what he's doing. He's going to be a really good artist, blah, yeah. blah, blah. And my father, like, and I had this moment where he said, you know, like, like he gave me his blessing. Wow. And then the next Tuesday on election day, he died. He dropped dead. Oh. He had an aneurysm on his way to work. Oh, no. So I had this moment with yeah. him where we actually made peace and then yeah. he just 
died. It was crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, after not speaking for a long time and like, I, I guess the process for him to like really get into, I don't want to say understanding, but like just accepting your sensibility. Yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, it's wow. What a it moment. It was really heavy. Yeah. But, you know, that was like a, so I had that moment that was really beautiful, but mm -hmm. his death totally rocked me. Sure. And I, sure. you know, I, I really, I, after I went home and spent like a week with my mother, she was still living in Rochelle, like mm -hmm. my sisters, we did a, it with the Jewish religion, you do like a shiva. We all yeah. sat around for a week. People came over, we mourned. And then my mother like, was like, everyone go back to school, finish your degrees, do your right. thing. Right. And I went back to like, do my, finish my master's I had right. second year of my MFA. And I had an amazing year in school, like just totally like just my work exploded. But I also was like drinking like crazy, doing right. drugs, you know, whatever. Right. I was so self-destructive yeah. and yet so constructive. It took years to unpack all that. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm sure. So wait, so this is this is New York in the 90s? Does the 90s? This is New York in 1987. My dad died in 1986. And okay. I... 86. I, I, I graduated from Pratt in 87. Right. And so, yeah, it was like the middle of the crack days. You know, this was like Brooklyn was pretty rough. You know, my parents, when I moved to Brooklyn, my parents were like, are you fucking out of your mind? We worked so hard to get you out of Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> we're like in the suburbs. This is heaven. Where, do you, where are you going? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so just paint a picture like how's your life like back then in the like late 80s in new york uh, you're working for this artist what's happening well you know i mean new york one thing that was really kind of crazy was like so i was in new york like just a little bit at like after the east village right. so at that point like i moved there in 85 like 85, like the East Village is now moving to Soho. It's all like credible. Like this whole East Village scene is just, mm -hmm. it's like, it's like you, there's very few, there's still some galleries down there in the Alphabet City, but the Alphabet, like Lower East, the East Village was like totally drug infested, crazy. Right. The Lower East Side, which is now where the art world is, no one, I mean, like you only went there to buy drugs. I mean, oh. that was like... Such a rough neighborhood. <laughs> Brooklyn, I mean, like I lived in, Pratt is like in what is Clinton Hill, which is like this beautiful neighborhood. Yeah. But like right in the back of Pratt is Bed-Stuy. Mm. But I was like, you know, I was making these pieces at that time that were like, I was going around and collecting debris from buildings. So I was like driving around in this car I had up into like, bed and filling up my trunk with like bricks and lumber and then bring it to my studio and building these sculptures out of it. You know, I was making sculptures back then in graduate school and, right. uh, you know, it was really like, a, um, and I was honestly like, I didn't, I went to art galleries. Then all of the art galleries were, like I said, Soho, I would yeah. go all the time, like religiously go to Sonnabend, Leo Castelli, you know, like, Speroni Westwater. There were just these galleries that were just like, um, and you know, you were like going and seeing like what is now textbook Bruce Norman for the first time in an art oh gallery. God. You know, it was yeah. crazy. You know, yeah. you're like seeing like Jeff He's Koons. Like yeah. I, when I had this job working for this, this woman. So she did this, uh, I remember she did this, uh, uh, 
fabrication up in this foundry up in upstate. It's like an hour out of the city in Beacon. Right. There's this foundry called Talix. Right. So I, it's an hour and a half from the city. I, she took, I took a train up there. I met her there. We went. I helped her do her fabrication. She was bending these aluminum pieces to make these vaginas, you know, whatever. They were like <laughs> Anyway, while I'm there helping her, working with her, working with the technician, I was walking around the Talix and there's like a big metal shelf and there's a big stainless steel bunny, like an inflatable oh. bunny, which it's I looked at and thought, oh, that was like a joke that they just did with their spare time. But it was Jeff Koontz. It was know, like I saw it in the, uh, in, the, in the foundry, like with dust on it. Oh, you know, really? It was just crazy. A month later, boom, uh-huh. it's like yeah. in, you know, it's in Sonovan, you know, yeah. it's yeah. just yeah. crazy. It was funny. Another thing happened while I was at that foundry that day was there was this, uh, I saw this like incredibly crazy piece. It was this like, uh, stain, it was like stainless steel cast stainless steel or something, but it was like, it had like a wolf's face and its guts were all these little toy soldiers. And it was holding this two guitars. And then this guy shows up with this giant head of hair and he starts welding on it and they're taking pictures of him welding like for it was robert longo like uh-huh. sitting there welding these things and as soon as he walks out of the foundry these guys took out these grinders and ground <laughs> everything off that he had done because he was just <laughs> doing it for the photographs but you know it was very funny to see i had like a front row seat for everything living in new york it was great it sounds like you were right in the moment when new york was just like exploding with uh, what you know became like the commercial art galleries and all of that right i mean like it, it didn't happen before it was like right then when you was like everything was happening. Well, the one thing that's funny is that in 1987, when I graduated from Pratt, in 1987, there was a huge junk bond stock crash. And all of the galleries that had managed to move from the Lower East Side into, mm. Chel- into half those galleries went out of business. Like all of a sudden oh, wow. we had like a total financial crisis in 1987 huh. that uh, kind of wiped out whatever promise and opportunity was out there. <laughs> Wow, really? But eh? yeah, I mean, sure. As it rebuilt, it rebuilt into exactly what you're talking about through into the early 90s. It- wow. So you, you are in school and everybody else in your class is thinking like, well, I mean, we are at the right time, at the right moment to go into, you know, the galleries and all of that. Or what is what is the sentiment uh, among yeah, artists? There's some of that, although I do think that Pratt was just a very funny school in that it was like, There were definitely schools in New York that were uh, like Hunter and like SVA and like uh, Parsons were much more where like they got celebrity teachers Mm. to teach at them. Pratt was kind of like they had all these professors that were there for just decades who were just biding their time. A lot of the professors were at the end of their art careers, kind Mm. of miserable, not longer pushing, you know. So, you know, I mean, a lot of people were there just, uh, there were a lot, there were, and it's a, it was a big art school. So there were all kinds of people there. For right. me, I was just like burrowing in, focusing on my work, making work. I was really excited. But what they did do at Pratt that was great was like, they brought in all these people like Peter Sheldahl or Hal Foster and all these other people. I got to meet them. They talked to me about my work. There was a lot wow. of enthusiasm. I felt mm-hmm. Like I was given a lot of enthusiasm from all of these people, but I was seriously so damaged from my dad's dying. I was just like, 
I wasn't really ready. And I really kept on telling myself like, uh, success for an artist really comes later in life. It's really mm. when it really means something mm-hmm. like a, 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 who wants to be a 24 year old flash in the pan. I want to be like a real artist with a real right. career and I'm just going to have to grow a lot to get there. So I, even though I had shows right out of school, I did some things right. with my career. I was, um, I was, uh, I was impatient, but I was also like super, I was just like, I was just really into drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like you were also at that point, like probably yeah, grieving your, your dad. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much, um, the effects of social media and instant gratification, uh, actually factors into that specific point that you were making into like, you know, artists right now thinking like, well, I can, you know, get my, I, I'm not going to talk about fame, but like, I'm going to get me my opportunity right after my MFA or something like that, right? So it's so interesting that you had that clear, like, okay, so this is a process. This is like a, you know, I, I need to keep working on oh, my... Oh, I was totally clear about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, that was totally, yeah. I knew that then. I How? just knew that. <laughs> well, I yeah. looked at people like Philip Gustin and thought mm-hmm. like, man, that late work is so fantastic. Right. I looked at people like, even though people said at the time, like de Kooning's late paintings, that he was completely... Uh, you know, had lost his uh, faculties. Mm. I thought those paintings were beautiful. I just thought that, like, I I just thought that art had to come from life experience. Yeah. And yeah. I didn't have any life experience. I had right. been in school my whole life. I didn't count my situation with my parents as yeah. life experience. I just right. Just that just that's just family is, is what you have to live, up. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Just family, exactly. So. I had a lot of things to learn. I needed to develop as a human being. That said, I did, I did have success out of school right away. That was right. kind of interesting. Right. But I also, honestly, like there was a lot of me out of school that was like, well, that was just the artwork that I made because I was in school. That isn't mm. really reflective of the artwork that I should be making as a person who's not a student. Like I needed to. I was, you know, I had to break free, break the chains of everything I'd learned. I had to unlearn to relearn. That was what I thought. One of the most common things that artists, when I talk to them, when they talk about their MFA experiences, they always say something uh, along the lines of, well, you go there to learn what your work is actually trying to to talk about. Like you dissect it and you put it back together, you know, in a way that you understand better what is what you're trying to do, right? So it sounds like you were also very clear yeah. in that whatever work you were making as a student, maybe it's just an exploration. It's not going to stay that way. You know, and so that that that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny. So I was making these like at, at Pratt when I was there. I was making these like uh, very like uh, fragile, gigantic. Well, gigantic. They were big, human size towers of bricks and stuff bundles of wood that I would stuff or build high enough that these things would be at the verge of toppling over, or they would topple over. They became the, or I would hack away, I'd make these bundles of wood bound at the top and bottom and then take a circular saw and cut all of the wood out so that there were just like this hourglass of fragility. And, uh. you know, a lot of this had to do with this tension that I was dealing with. Mm. And anyway, I got in, I would, and then I would call these pieces things like 
for the loneliness that comes from separation and staring at the same four walls or, or I called one piece metamorphosis while in transition. And I got into this show actually like a, a museum show uh, at, and this curator said to me like, um, it was a show called a force of repetition and it was all about process art, process right. people, people making process art. And she really included like, seven of my big sculptures oh, wow. in the show but she said i will not put you in the show if you with those titles those titles <laughs> don't make any sense with my idea about you know uh process art what process right. art you know it was a modernist this is all like uh you know um you know some kind of art theory and i said fine i'll so we shortened the things to like for the loneliness dot 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 metamorphosis <laughs> dot 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 that's what we called the pieces <laughs> so i was in this show i did i i decided yes of course i'm a young person i need opportunity i can't say no mm-hmm. i said yes i wasn't gonna i wasn't there wasn't an argument that really seemed she told me i'm not gonna let you win this argument you won't be in the show and i said fine i'm I'll. and uh i had um I started to realize at that point how important things like language was to my work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started uh, as when I was at Pratt, I found an manual typewriter and I would use it to type like concrete poetry and make word art, word, little word, sent poems. I don't know what you call what right. stories, short stories. Yeah. And I realized that that was really what was sort of like the significant part of my work was like the words, mm. the text, the language. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. language that always meant so much to me because I can't spell. I can't, you know, I can I use the wrong words all the time. I write, you know, I would as a student, I would hand in my papers and the teachers would give them back to me. Sometimes they would say things like can't read. That would be uh-huh. the comment, like because uh-huh. they. They, like they just couldn't. circles around yeah. every misspelling they just yeah. refuse but when i would type my own things with a manual typewriter in my studio in my apartment i was like i was free to write what i wanted to write so right that started a transition where i started to move into making language-based work around then and that was where it was really i found it more important to not just follow the success of where i had come from my graduate school degree Right, And I had to actually start to build a, a career without any influence of anybody telling me what I had. It was like someone told me what I can't do. And I start, yeah. that's how I started to know what I needed to do. That's an interesting way to access that area of text-based pieces, right? Because, I mean, right now, obviously, your work, you know, it, that's a very important part of it, right? And so uh, that's yeah. interesting how that transition went into, into actually coming to life. Yeah, that was really mm-hmm. the origins of it. You know, when I was at Pratt, I also like I got in there as a painter. I thought I was going to be a painter, but I immediately was like, I don't know what to paint. I have no subject. Mm. There's no topic. So building these sculptures, Mm -hmm. which I really enjoyed doing, but I thought of myself as somewhat of a painter. Right. Always. Mm -hmm. Dare I say that. But uh, that was what I thought at the time. And once I started to sort of move into language... I started to have subject matter. I started to have something that sort of provided me with a reason to go to paint, to write, to, you know, so, um, and then I started to sort of cultivate a source for ideas, uh-huh. which was sort of writing. The other thing was, so after this period of time where I had these museum shows and all this other stuff, uh, 
I, I had a, I got in, I had a huge accident. I oh. fell down an elevator shaft Oh, and I broke all the ribs on one side of my body. I was like, I, I was like really, I was in a hospital for a while and oh wow, I got out and it took me like literally like a, almost a year to really recover to wow. where I was back to where I was like back to normal. Right. And over the course of that year, I was one of the most depressing periods of time in my oh, life. Man. I was just so like, uh, mad at myself and depressed and uh, having trouble with the art world, the art world. Like I remember going to a gallery where I was very friendly with them. And I came in a few weeks after my accident hobbling in sort of, and I was sort of looking for some like community and some mm -hmm. support. And mm -hmm. instead I was sort of like shunned, like, oh my God, like you are just a total fuck up. <laughs> so, really? so like I felt very like uh, alienated from a wow. lot of things. Anyway, during that period of time, this is like 1993 now, 92, right. 92. Yeah. I um, applied to do this uh, residency in Utica, New York at this place called the Sculpture Space. Right. And uh, it was like the last like hope i had nothing else going on right and i went up there with like just with i went up there planning to stay for three weeks a month i ended up staying there they gave me some help a job and then i won a grant while i was there i ended up staying there for like four months uh -huh. and there was this guy there from toronto who was working there this guy peter boyer i don't know if you know peter boyer no he's, he's a sculptor lives in toronto right. peter Still lives in Toronto. He's uh, he teaches at OCAD. Right. He's uh, right. anyway. At the time, Peter was there because he had a Canada Council grant. He was just living, you know, doing his thing. And I was like welding all these letters and words and sentences, putting them on. Uh, I was making all this uh, word-based work, directly word-based sculptures. Right. And uh, at the end of that uh, period of time, I was felt very good. Like all of a sudden, I was like, I rebuilt my whole self into a new kind of person. And when we were leaving, Peter and I left around the same time. Right. And he said, why don't we, uh, you should tell me a place to send my work in New York, see if there was any interest, and I'll tell you a place to send in Canada. And we'll just like exchange this sort of... Uh, idea and so i he told me to contact mercer union right which was i i sent a package of slides a resume to mercer union and then like months later um out of the blue back in brooklyn i got this uh letter from mercer union and they were doing this show then called the heliotropic this woman jennifer mcmakin was curating this show right and uh, I didn't even know what a heliotrope. It was all based on Walter Benjamin and this whole, I didn't know who Walter Benjamin was. I was like, <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm going to be in a show in Toronto, you know, and, and that show, I think Janet Werner was in that show. There oh, was wow. a lot of okay. people in that show. Right. It was a big show. And Mercer Union was kind of a, I guess, you know, it was a really good thing to be in at that point. It sure. was a very kind of vital part of the Toronto scene. And so in like 93, I, um, I was in my first show in Canada and, uh, and that was totally crazy. That's your first connection to Canada then. Yeah. yeah. It was totally crazy. Yeah. Totally crazy. Wow. 
And it was crazy because like I went up to Canada and I was like, wow, you people actually read the art magazines. <laughs> like we just look at the pictures in New York. <laughs> I mean, I met so many people who were like intellectual about art and like right. really interested in ideas. And in Canada, by the way, there was such a I mean, there was such a heavy influence from at that time in the 90s from people like Lawrence Wiener, even though he's mm -hmm. not Canadian, but everyone also from uh, Halifax, there was this huge, like people were putting vinyl on the on words right. on the walls of gallery in the nineties in Toronto. That was, and I was thing. making these three, three dimensional <laughs> text based pieces, signs right. with lights in them. And, and so they became, I, it was, I kind of became very popular in Canada at a, at a, that time. It was kind of funny. Were you ever represented around here in Canada? I worked with Robert Birch. That's who I showed that he asked me to do a show with oh, okay. him in like 1995, I think 96. I did a show with him. That was my first solo show in Canada. And then I showed with Robert for a long right. time right. Into, into the early 2000s. And um, I also worked with this guy, John Massier, who was then running what was then the uh, art gallery, the uh, Koffler Center, yeah. which was up in this. Jewish Center, and I was I did a I was in a couple of shows with John. He curated some stuff, so I was coming back and forth. I ended up doing shows across Canada. I did a show at Southern Alberta Art Gallery. I did a show with Monty Clark in Vancouver. I did you know I did a lot of work around. I did yeah. something in the Maritimes at the um, Owens Art Gallery. Anyway, right. it was funny. It's great. I mean, like, it seems like, you know, you found a good community as well in Canada, which is, you know, it's interesting because usually when you think about Canada from the States, you usually think like, you know, it's a small place there. I don't know what they're doing in the north. They're probably, you know, <laughs> building some igloos or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Polar bears. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, am I, am I going to survive if I go there? Like, <laughs> so um, the topic and, and the uh, kind of like the, the theme that you were talking about with the text in your pieces back then, is it similar to, to what you've been doing um, in the recent past? Well, so what happened was I was still like in New York, I was having a lot of trouble getting traction. Right. But in New York in the nineties, it was very kind of different atmosphere than now. There were a lot of experimental kind of spaces and things like that. Right. And so as I was typing, doing all these typewriter stories and typewritten kind of artwork with drawings on them and paintings, and they were becoming more and more elaborate illustrations for the type stories that I was typing, I started to do performances, doing mm. performance art in New York where I would like read the stories off of my drawings. Uh -huh. I would go around. I did a lot of that in galleries and I did that. I mean, I even got to do that at the Whitney Museum. I did that in a lot of places. Like I was right. just, and I was like doing this kind of artwork that was based on that. And then I ended up having some really good shows in New York and things started to happen. Right. And as I did that, my work became more and more pictorial and less and mm -hmm. less about the narrative. And the narrative is now more suggested. So mm -hmm. I moved like much more into like a hardcore kind of, kind of text minimalist not minimalist but reductive kind of text right but uh and the picture the painting part became more elaborate and more of what the pieces are about as opposed to being about the story so 
there was a, a metamorphosis that happened from one place to the other over the course of 20 years, you know. But, For yeah. sure. What I'm trying to get is uh, the politics and all of that in your latest work. Was that ever part of your work back in the days when you started to do the performances and all of that? Was that also involved or that's a, a recent thing? Well, like the stories I were writing where a lot of them were uh, uh, sort of on a micro politic scale. Okay. Like I was like writing sort of stories about things that happened. So mm. like I was like, I, I remember like I had like I had a job. I ended up having a job working at Peter Sheldahl's house, building his bookshelves. Yeah. So I worked there for, and I, it was my job. He hired me, his wife and him hired me. I built all of Peter Sheldahl's bookshelves for him. I was in his apartment for like a month. Right. <laughs> building there. Anyway, he and I were friendly. I was friendly with his wife. They invited me to parties, all this other stuff. It was very nice. Right. Anyway, then not that long afterwards, I was in a show around the corner from their house. He lives in the East Village and there was a place called PS122. I was yeah. in a show there mm -hmm. and I called Peter up and I was like, hey, I'm in a show around the corner. I was wondering if you would come and see my work around the corner. Right. And he acted surprised that I called him at all. And then he said to me, if I should know about your work, I already would. Oh, wow. And I, and I wrote that right into a story, which I read out loud and performed everywhere. But I never mentioned his name in the story. I'm telling right. it to you. But I. Right. Uh, there was another sort of story where I was doing a job. I was working over at um, I was working over at. Uh, again, I'm going to tell you the names, but in the stories I was writing, I never said any names. Right. But I was doing, I was like working at Barbara Gladstone Gallery. And I was wrapping all this mm -hmm. artwork up. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, Barbara comes into the back room with Matthew Barney and she's like, unwrap all those pieces, which I had just spent two <laughs> hours wrapping. So I unwrap right. all the pieces and he takes out a branding iron. He brands all of his pieces. And then they tell me to wrap them up again. Right. And then... He comes back with Jerry Saltz, and then they're like, unwrap that artwork. Jerry has to see them. So I can show them. Jerry Saltz. <laughs> and so she's talking to Jerry Saltz, and I'm sitting there like a fly on the wall. And right. she's saying to Jerry, look at this one here. He's quoting himself. <laughs> and Jerry just smiles and agrees. And then I write in my story of this whole episode, I'm going to start quoting myself more often because no one ever heard my quotes <laughs> in the first place. Anyway, Jerry like saw me do a performance of this and then hated me for the rest of his life. Oh, is that right? Because <laughs> I never mentioned his name. I never mentioned Matthew Barney. I never mentioned Barbara Gladstone. Right. But Jerry Saltz heard me tell that story, which he was there for and right. just treated me like I was a, um, a spy, a traitor. To is that right? Cause. So, uh, you know, I've had that. But so... Yeah. So I've always been kind of political in that sense, in mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. I call out whatever is called deserves to be called out. I'm right. making comments about. So now, I mean, obviously, before, during and after Trump, there was a lot of reasons to be political yeah. because. But at the time when I was like making that work back in the 90s, earlier 2000s into the first decade of, you know, a lot of that stuff was really just about this kind of like. American dream that was not really mm. true. Like it was supposed to be like this, but it was really like this. I mean, I was like living in New York, supposed to be living in the glamour of being an artist in New York. 
That's right. And I was like struggling to make a living and going out and sawing lumber and like building things for the glamorous people in the New York art world. So right, that was really right. what was where the politics came in. One of the other aspects that I'm always so fascinated by is, uh, you know, when artists specifically talk about success, it's wide. Yeah. The conception and the concept of success is so vast you know, in the arts, that it's really interesting. I mean, like, so you mentioned that coming out of your MFA, you felt like you had success because you had shows and all of that. What did that mean back then for you when you were like working and doing odd jobs? You know, what was that like back then for you thinking of success? I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm very much, I think the same as I was then. I'm still just like, trying to just push forward, trying to think of new things to do, keep me engaged in the work. I never really, the seduction of success of an artist has kind of eluded me in a right. way. I'm not, you know, I mean, I like, believe me, I like the fact that now as a 50 some odd, late 50s artist, people actually know what I do. Mm -hmm. That was very hard back then. And when I first got out of school, when it'd be like, because mm. the way I identified myself was me in the studio as an artist. And then when I go out in the real world, nobody knew who I was or what I was doing. So I never really felt like I was getting enough. That was how I get, created my personality was around my artwork. And then right. it was never around. So, you know, I, it was, uh, it, it's so, and I've always felt I've always felt so totally disrespected by the New York art world because people like Jerry Saltz, you know, have chosen to not like what I do, you know, yeah. because I made work that, you know, I mean, I sold that piece that he didn't like, you know, to somebody. <laughs> so, I mean, like, what is, so, you know, I mean, it's like, you can't, I mean, you know, it's a fight. I don't want to, I'm going to continue to keep fighting. I don't care. If you listen to like art critics in general and all of that, and, and especially back in those days, not so much now, I think it's a, there's a lacking of that. But back then, I think art critics were like pretty out there, right? Like in terms of like, I'm not here to make friends. I'm just here to like really, you know, yeah. say how it is and all of that. And, and that's good. You know, it's like it's, it's what you want probably for a criticism, right? But the thing is that the other part that I don't know how much is, uh, you know, taken in consideration from these people is like, In the end of the day, they are kind of like gatekeepers, right? And like whatever they say, it has impacts. It is pretty impactful, whatever the art critics actually, or back then, maybe, maybe back in, yeah, the, sure. in the late late 80s, uh, 90s. Yeah, it, it's really important. Powerful. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how much thought they give to that stuff in saying like, I can definitely make or break, you know, a career. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in New York, in New York, for example, Uh, in the 80s and 90s into mm -hmm. the early 2000s. If you got a review in right. the Village Voice, the New York Times, or the New Yorker, you were golden. Right. And if you didn't get a review in those, it meant your show didn't even happen. Now, there's so much stuff. There's Artnet, there's blah, yeah. blah, blah. You name the podcast, yeah. the the magazine, right. the web thing, there's so much content necessary that now it's really watered down the power of the critics. And yeah. uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing mm -hmm. in a mm -hmm. way, because mm -hmm. I think the critics, 
I think the critics were um, are are not honest brokers. They are dealing with things like because of who takes them out to lunch, who they're friends right. with, who what openings they get to go to the dinner afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, they uh, sure the critics know sometimes really do go out and discover something, and they're yeah. really great about like. You know, like, well, oh, wow, I found this thing. It's totally great. I'm going to write about it. But in general, it's like they have so many people tugging on their jack on their shirt sleeves the whole time trying to get attention that, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, and yeah. I, I think it's really kind of like uh, it's 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 stacked against, you know, like I'm not, um, you know, I always joke like I'm not like a beautiful person. I'm not like a uh I don't come from the right family. I don't come right. from the right side of the tracks to right. really have um, garnered the the actual like uh, door opener that a lot Definitely. of people have. So I've had to really muscle my way through, and I don't get treated so much. You know, not to say I don't get treated the way I should. I'm just saying that it's like I have bruised some egos along the way, and right. so I'm. Um, it's come back to bite me in the ass. And, uh, you know, I, I, I still have managed to cobble together a serious career Yeah, because I haven't stopped aspiring for a career. So, you know, I was not so seduced as a young person getting in a museum show. Like I said, I got in that museum show in particular and I was angry because they wouldn't take my titles of my pieces, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, it, it, sounds, it sounds like you're like you had it clear. You had it clear that you know what is what you want, and and that you wanted to respect your your work, right? I mean, I think that that's uh, yeah, it's a romantic view. Yeah, I, I, I guess, had a romantic I guess. view. So let's fast forward to like you know more recent years. How has that changed at all? If it has ever changed? Well, I mean. I think I still like, uh, I don't think it's changed that much. You know, like I am really like, uh, committed. I just, the work has changed. The work Mm -hmm. has grown and changed. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I try to keep myself from getting really bored. So like at a certain point, it's like, you just can't make the same work again. I might return to it at another point, but I have to move to a different material. Right. I, when I do shows, I like to have these sort of elements and shows that involve me like building things like furniture or places mm-hmm. to sit sometimes or, or a bar or something, because I really just want to create environments around my work. And so all of that has convoluted what I do because I'm fully invested in building the furniture, the bar, the, you know, the, sh- the hook rug, the whatever it is yeah. that I'm doing because, and so that suddenly creates new v- avenues. Like I had this guy offered me this opportunity to do mm. an installation a- mm-hmm. about four years ago in uh, his gallery, this guy, Bart, who runs a gallery called Elmac, which used to be on Grand Street downtown. And they had a room on the top floor of their building that was just like a disaster. Right. And uh, they would they were going to fix it up to do something with that room. But he said, we're going to do art projects in this. It was like the attic space of a building. So he said they had the whole building. So he said, we're going to do art projects in here and we'd like you to do an art project. 
do what you want with it. So it was like this weird space. And I decided that I was going to make that weird space into like, my idea at first was like, I'm going to make this into like this weird bachelor pad, you know, for like a guy who like my dream bachelor pad in this really funky, weird space in Lower East Side. Right. And I wanted to have a tiger skin rug on the floor. <laughs> and then I started thinking about how am I going to get a tiger skin rug? I'm not going to buy one. I'm going to make one. And then that led me into like making a hook rug of a tiger skin rug, which I learned how to do by watching YouTube <laughs> videos right. on how to do hook rugging. Yeah, yeah. And it was sort of this weird 70 thing. Anyway, fast forward, like I suddenly have like a body of work that I've been working yeah. on for like the last four years of making hook rugs because yeah. I just followed that route. And then that show, instead of it being a bachelor pad, turned into the apartment of this weirdo <laughs> who gave up on his art career and decided to make hook rugs. <laughs> that was what it, I mean, that was sort of the joke of what I ended up making out of that show. Right. And I made this really funny, it's very funny, uh, hook, this video called Hooking Up With Dave, which is like a, I made my own uh, YouTube video on how to make hook rugs. When we met, I was showing that piece in Montreal, right? At the fair, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, at, at, at Papier. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's just a very funny, like, series of events. But, you know, I, I kind of fell in love with this aspect of the work. And then I, sometimes painting ran into a dead end. So I changed to hook rugged. And then I went back and forth. And now, like, in the pandemic, I became very, it was like a saving grace that I could make hook rugs at home in my apartment. Yeah, it's almost meditation, eh? Yeah, it's like yeah. I'm knitting my way through right. the pandemic, <laughs> but making hook rugs. So, so how are things in New York now? So you're based in Brooklyn right now? That's where you I live? I live in Manhattan. In Manhattan, I live okay. in Chelsea, right. and I have a studio in Brooklyn. And okay. I work, I've had the same studio for like 15, 17 years, I think. Right, right. I've been in the studio for a very long time in Williamsburg, Greenpoint. Right. But I've lived in Chelsea also for since... Uh, I've lived in Chelsea since the mid nineties. I've okay. always had, I haven't lived in my studio since I got married. That changed my life. I didn't, uh, my wife did not want to live in my <laughs> pigsty. And, you mean she uh, didn't want to be like sniffing like solvents and, uh, and being like, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Right. So, uh, I've been living in, out of my studio for a long time, but, um, things in New York are, um, you know, we had our really, really, really horrible time during this pandemic. Mm. And it ended, the horrible time really ended in uh, June. Right. And it's been relatively good here. Okay. I mean, everyone still wears the mask. Everyone's really serious about it. Like We got scared into being compliant right. about things like wearing masks and taking social distancing seriously. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. you know, New York is terrible in a way because... My whole life here, since I moved here, has been built around me running around to art openings, to shows, to movies, to rock shows, to yeah. doing everything, yeah. running into friends at these places, running into friends on the subway platform, running into friends in the supermarket. And now we all like scoot around, not trying to see each other. And That's so, right. you know, all yeah. of why I lived in New York for all these years and all those conversations that I had that led to things that I ended up making artwork about, you know, things like 
all of that stuff, all of that casual sense of community right. was my social life. That was yeah. how I socialized. Yeah. And so it's been very isolating. But in general, thank God, we're all healthy. We've been For healthy. Sure. I've been able to put artwork, make artwork. Yeah. I can't complain. That's know, great. That's great. But it's, it's true that, you know, what makes a city or like an urban environment so great is that you're with like a bunch of people, right? And a bunch of things happening yeah. around you. That's what actually makes it so appealing, at least for a person like me. I grew up in a really tiny town, like a very small town in Mexico. And so when I moved for yeah. the first time to a city, I remember the feeling of like, shit, like things are happening here. You know, what am I doing? Uh, and so, you know, <laughs> so when you see that a city such as New York and, and in a very, you know, different way, Toronto as well, where I am right now, um, it changes completely because you cannot go anywhere. I mean, like you, you do start questioning like, okay, so what is the balance here? You know, it's like, wh wh why, you know, right. yeah. And you start to also appreciate, you know, how much you perhaps lean so much into the social circles and, and the community, right? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very tough. You know, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, the one thing about living in New York, that's really different from Toronto or Montreal are, are pretty amazing. I love those cities, but mm -hmm. like New York has like 10 times the amount oh. of art openings, Yeah, you know, going on all yeah. the time. There is just always something to do. And I, right. I am, I was in and out of art galleries, art openings, art galleries all the fucking time. Like yeah. just, that's just what I did. I mean, yeah. that is, and I, you know, I have really only been, I haven't been to art gallery. I haven't been going to art galleries. I don't go look at art right now at all. Oh wow! I look at it on Instagram. I look, I sometimes We'll go see a show because there's like a friend or something. And then right. when you go, you hope no one's in the gallery and it's That's quiet. Right. And, That's right. You know, so it's just. Yeah, you totally go like on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's totally changed everything. That's the whole right. thing. So, so um, but I, I know that you had a, an opening recently, right? I think it was over the summer. I did a show. Uh, I did a show that opened in uh, October or se in October. late September. Okay. That was. Um, And that was the show of hook rugs that I did that yeah. I made during the pandemic that was called uh, Mar-a-Lago Sunsets. Right. How was that experience? It was good. I mean, you know, it was, uh, listen, I was at that point, I mean, I made all those sunsets because I made these hook rug sunsets. Right. Because I w felt like I wasn't getting to go out and look at the sunset. We mm -hmm. were not supposed to leave the house. We were mm -hmm. supposed to be quarantined. I was seeing people posting their beautiful sunset images from their vacation house, you know, from their, um, their beach houses, second home or whatever, their beach houses. So I started using that kind of stuff. And then I was writing on them text that really was kind of like a double-edged sword, double entendre of being like, uh, well, like I wrote on one of them, you know, um, like, none of this is true, you yeah. know, or tomorrow, you know, one of the, sometimes it said things like, uh, I love the cliches or, you know, there were just different kind of sentiments. Uh, tomorrow was better, you know, it was always about the sunset itself, about the image, about what I had decided to render. Right. But the text also played into this kind of like, uh, political backs talk that Trump was making, you know, and, 
And, you know, it was absolutely, I know, I'm sure, because I know Canadians really do pay attention so closely to what's going on in the United States. But, I mean, when you were hearing Trump talk during these press conferences at night, and, you know, you would really turn them on, like, maybe we're going to hear something about this pandemic. Right. And he would say things that were just like, we're going to beat this thing, you know, by April, it's going to be over. I mean, like... You know, it, it turned itself into art for me. And so what a great thing to be able to actually have a show during a pandemic, during this whole thing. But at the same time, you know, as, as much as it was fantastic, everything was great. It was also still just in its reality. It was hugely disappointing because right. we had an opening where everybody had to stay on the street outside. You know, all those things, there was like... You know, the gallery kept the door locked and you had to ring a doorbell to go into the gallery if you wanted to see the show for the whole time it was up, which is just like a barrier that is just sucks. So, you know, I mean, it was like everything that was great about it was tempered by the reality that this is what we're in. But again, I was so glad I got to do the show. It was great to be able to share. I mean, the nice thing about Instagram, I love Instagram because (laughs) I love the immediate satisfaction of posting work and having people comment. <laughs> that on is it. so refreshing it, to hear somebody say it out loud. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I mean, it, right. I love it. I've spent my whole career making work and then like leaning against another wall so I can make another piece and no one gets to see the piece I just finished. I mean, it's just right. a great thing, but it doesn't fill in for like having a real authentic show in a gallery. Yeah, And even like the show I had, which was good to have, was not, in my mind, from my New York City kind of experience, yeah. not like a real show in a gallery. Because definitely half yeah. of the people I know were like, I'm really happy for you, but I'm not going. That's right. That's <laughs> yeah. right. No, no, no. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, we had our first couple of shows in this space in Toronto at the end of September. And yeah, I mean, it's it's exactly what you're talking about. I mean, it doesn't feel the same because really, I mean, what makes an opening so great is that you share with people a lot, you talk to people a lot, you drink, you know, you do all that kind of things. Yeah. And, and, and it just makes it so much more meaningful in terms of like, you know, even in this space, which is kind of like outdoors because you open the door of the garage and then it's right. like, there's a lot of, you know, um, but even then, it, you know, everybody, as you said, like everybody's been really careful. And so like, you have to be a part so it doesn't really create that opportunity to share as much, right? And everybody's just kind of like coming in and out. Art is a really funny thing because it is such a solitary kind of sort of lonely act, which I actually really love. I love. But then I also love the spectacle. I love yeah. the spectacle. Yeah. You know, the the opening, when you have a good opening. Yeah like a good opening and actually things sell at the opening, like things happen. Somebody tells you they're writing a review at the opening, anything like that happens. It's just like you are, it is like magic. It's you know, a drug. I love it's a the drug. spectacle. Yeah. It's a yeah. drug. I mean, listen, I love, love the part of like making the work, making the show when you know the show is right around the corner and you're really involved and you, that is the best part. Yeah. The opening is the second best part. Everything right. else about being an artist is pretty hard. <laughs> like trying to come up with the next idea, trying to think about yeah. what you want to do, even when the show's up and it's running. But the yeah. opening is just, it's, it's magic when it's fun. 
And I can tell you about that from the other side, which is, I guess, curator, organizer, however you want to call it, right? Like, you know, you're putting together this thing with the artist and your work involved and all of that. And, and even for somebody that has that kind of like a experience from a secondhand type of way, which is like, you know, we didn't yeah. make the work, but we put together, you know, the show and all of that and, and the space. Even that secondhand experience, like it feels so strong, you know? It is incredible. So yeah, that's what is missing. And obviously we'll have to be patient. Have it's not going to gonna happen anytime soon. But uh, for now, I think, you know, it, it, we're doing what we can. I think that's the best way to approach it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm uh, I, I'm also glad because of my nature. I'm glad I was able to have a show during the pandemic because right. I'm a little bit more relaxed now about like back into the you know, it's like black, back to the drawing board. Right. But when you go back to the drawing board and you know that you may, you know, like having had a show recently sort of satisfied a bunch of things so that right. I can patiently come up with the next thing. Right. And the right, next right. thing, you know, is going to be hard because I'm not going to keep making sunsets. You know, like I did that. That was like a, that was a project. That was a serious project. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm not saying I won't make any more, but I'm just saying like I don't you just don't want to water down the project. You want to expand on it as much as you can all the time. Yeah, no, that's it. Um, there are a few pieces that really struck me so hard. There was one thought that I had for the longest time thinking about the Trump administration, which was like, I wonder if back in the days when Reagan was president and again, like I'm Mexican living in fucking Canada and I'm thinking of the American politics, but anyways, so, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, and, and I'm thinking like, I wonder if Reagan uh, of people, you know, living in that era and like strongly thinking about this, I wonder if they felt the same. And then I saw your piece that is something to the effect, I can't find it right now, but it's something to the effects of like, I feel nostalgia about things that I never knew or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel nostalgia about things I probably never knew. Exactly. Yeah. That goes for like probably like positive things and like also like horrible things, right? So it's like kind of like, oh yeah, I, I feel like probably I'm connecting with something in the past. But I don't know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Reagan so, was the mm -hmm. biggest divider before right. Trump. He was right. the worst. Mm -hmm. And uh, I will say two things about Reagan. One is... When I lived in Washington, D.C., and I worked, when I went to GW, I come from a family, hardcore Democrats, our whole, right. my whole life, Jewish, Democrat, liberal New Yorkers, you know. Right. But I got a job working in the Reagan White House in the mailroom, huh? delivering letters around in a cart before okay. emails. We would, like, walk around with these carts with folders. Yeah. Because someone I knew said that they could get me a job, and I was like, sure, I'd go do that, and I did it for months, a couple mm -hmm. of months. And then I was like, what am I doing here? I mean, I, I hate Reagan. <laughs> like Reagan's, uh, you know, Reagan's like the worst president ever. And then I moved to New York. Right. So in New York in the eighties, when I moved here, 85, 86, 87, 89, up until Clinton came into power, we still had George W. Bush in the middle. Of, I mean, George Bush senior in the middle of that whole thing. I mean, there was the AIDS crisis. It was just terrible. It right. was like a we had in New York. I mean, I'm not 
I'm not gay, but we were so afraid. You were so afraid to have sex with people. It was like, yeah. Yeah. So I felt like personally, it was like the party had, had ended right when I arrived to New York because it was just so, and to me, that was what really influenced my work in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways because Mm -hmm. I was like thinking like when I was doing these drawings and when I was doing all these typewriter stories and doing the drawings, I was drawing all these pictures of from like 1978, 1968 Playboy magazines of like what it was like to be like in like living, you know, like the old Playboys had always like the dude with like the girl on his arm and they were all wearing like kind of like some weird cheesy bathing suit or some, you know, and I was like, it was like, why doesn't my life look anything like this? (laughs) And the reason why it doesn't is because that doesn't exist because we have AIDS, because Reagan is Mm. like the big divider Mm because the country's really rotten. And that spirit is what has been in my work all Mm -hmm. the way through until now. It's like I said, it was like dissecting this American dream of what we do not have what they tell us it should be like and what it's really like. And that's where that kind of sentiment came from. I have nostalgia for things I probably never knew because (laughs) everyone thinks that like, yeah, we're going to get a slice of Donald Trump's pie, but Donald Trump doesn't share his pie with anybody. Right, right. Or, or or even take it like, you know, further and, and more philosophical, if you wish, and, and say like, you know, you're always chasing the rabbit, right? You're always chasing yes. something that like, it's not like you never know, and you never know exactly what it is. And you probably will never because it will always be moving, right? Yeah, right. Perfect. Perfect. Exactly. You're pretty active in social media and in, in Facebook and, and on Instagram. Um, do you ever get any kind of like, pushback or or like comments from like the other side of the aisle do, do you ever engage with any you know thing like that i don't know not so much not i so don't much. know why i don't know why well, that's good i mean i really don't know why like yeah. i i have uh you know during 2016 during this presidential campaign during the hillary clinton period of time I would sometimes get into fights with people on inst on on right and there were always people i didn't know strangers were sleeping in. And I really do think that that was part of that whole disinformation, this whole crazy kind of stuff that was going on. But I don't know. I mean, I think that has something to do with the weird algorithms of Instagram and, and Facebook, because it's like, I only get people who seem to agree, like agree. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, And I think, I think that that's a big, uh, part of, of, of the algorithms of all social media, specifically, you know, YouTube and, and Facebook, that they will they will actually show yeah. you more of what you're looking at, right? People don't understand that. And so it becomes such a huge echo chamber, right? Like you, you're sending something to the void, according to you, and it's coming back so loud that you say like, oh, yeah. like everybody's thinking this, you know? Well, the one thing that's been really funny, though, about mm-hmm. this, uh, I do think, like, for, as far as, like, Instagram goes, like, I have, I had this residency I did in Zurich in Switzerland a couple of years ago, and I was there uh, for a month in the summer of 2018. I didn't know anyone in Switzerland except for the person that invited me, and there were three other artists there working at this time. Right. And I decided I was going to do, like, an Instagram 
sort of project where I was going to try to post something every day. Like mm -hmm. I was drawing a lot. I was making paintings a lot. So I, I decided I was going to post an Instagram, all this stuff. I, I started during that period of time to try to like game the Instagram system. And I started to like, just look for tons and tons of people who I didn't know to try to like, uh, like galleries, like people I would look who, who liked things on galleries. Anyway, I expanded my Instagram audience a lot by doing this kind of weird thing. But yeah, I mean, somehow I built a big audience of people. Right. But I have not, I don't know how that happens when everything is this feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And I still can't seem to bust out. Like I, you know, like, I don't know how you get to the point where you have, how does somebody get 10,000 followers, 100,000 followers? I mean, how does that happen? I think it's a, it's a pretty, um, a thing of the moment. It seems to be like Insta fame, you know what I mean? So it seems like you do some yeah. one thing that just catches fire and you're in, you know, it, it, doesn't, in. it doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't really have like a structure, you know, it seems like that unless, you know, there's, there's like very specific things like, I don't know if you're like a fitness model, you know, it's very visual and, you know, things like that or previous fame. Right. I think it's, it's a lot of that. I don't really know that Instagram fame is what I'm really aspiring for. I'm just <laughs> That's saying right. that That's right. I, I'm just saying that yeah. it's just an interesting, it's an interesting thing. And I actually, I do really like it because I do feel like. Getting to put your work up on Instagram feels good. It feels for sure. That's what I use it as, 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 as like a. Do you get feedback you know, from people looking at it and, and telling you something meaningful? Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, but you know, sentences and people sold some things through Instagram. Oh, you know, good. it's been good. That's you know, great. I sell things occasionally and yeah. like, uh, I get feedback. I mean, you know, but I also like, uh, I think I have. Uh, the one thing about that Instagram that's really nice is like, um, my life looks much better on Instagram than it really is. <laughs> that's right. I, I, the way that I like to say, to describe that is like, is a great creator of anxiety. <laughs> yes. you, know, you, you compare, you compare somebody else's life according to Instagram. You're like, mine is shit. <laughs> right. And, well, that was the whole sunset piece. I was right. like, look at these people looking at the at the beach. How did they get to the beach? Well, I'm, we're having a pandemic. You're not supposed to be there, <laughs> goddammit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, exactly. yeah, and, and then I saw that you have like a really interesting collaboration with, uh, with a fashion house, Celine, right? What's going oh, yeah. on there? How, how did that I happen? did do this thing with Celine. Well, that happened. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it happened. I mean, right. they um, approached me, but wow. uh, they, my work, I had, I think they saw my work at some art fairs where I was doing some art fairs with some people. Right. I think there was some Instagram attention that came about, but um, you know, it was a really fun project and I really enjoyed that. And it was really crazy the amount of press that came out of this project, like wow. articles everywhere, like UK, you know, you're all over Europe, all over Asia is super great. Um, I, I found the whole thing to be kind of like, like for the amount, as I complained about how little 
there was in terms of access to press in New York City in like particularly like the 90s and 2000s. This was like the total opposite. Right. Like there were right. there are magazines and then niche magazines <laughs> and then niche magazines. And there's so much access to press that this opened me up to. Wow. And that was kind of a thrilling thing to happen. It was super thrilling. Yeah. I yeah. don't know, honestly, how it will affect my life. Like, you know, I'm, it was exciting and fun and I would love to do this more and again and again, but oh, yeah, I never aspired to be sort of like in the fashion world. And so it was very funny that it fell into my lap <laughs> like this, you know, did, did they give you some, some merch? <laughs> yeah. They gave me some stuff, they, you know, and it's funny, like they, they're like made all these shirts and stuff that are like, you know, absurd. Like, I mean, it's just absurd because like, it's expensive. It's very right. um, beautiful, well done stuff, but it's not the way I dress or present myself. Yeah. It's high fashion, right? High fashion. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only really big problem with this project was that my season that I got to do launched right. in 2019, but it was spring, summer, 2020, which oh. happens to be COVID. So, yeah. you know, not the best time for luxury brands, right? Really, you know, right. but it was sort of perfect timing for me, yeah. but I was able, because it launched in 2019, they had a huge runway show in Paris. I got to go to Paris in June nice. of 2019 and do this whole thing. Nice. I got to work with them on it before I was able to get all of this kind of attention for it. It was able to ex have its moment. But when the actual time was that it was supposed to be like, I went to Paris in March, 2020, last March to paint the window of a store there with, I wrote, there's, I wrote, there's no irony here on the window of a, of a window and Rue Dufault in Paris. Right. And I left Paris and they literally put plywood up over the window and oh, shut the store down fuck. like the day later for the COVID quarantine. Like, you know, I flew back oh. on a plane. It was like the plane was deserted. I yeah. got home. I was like, and basically a week later, we were all locked down in New York. I mean, this yeah. was like my moment with this fashion project to really launch. Yeah. And Such a bad came timing. At the worst possible moment. So, yeah. but I'm not complaining. I really, I, I mean, I hope that this will, will be another project. Another thing will happen. This will, I'll get a chance to really happen in real time. But boy, it was a fun thing to happen. I wow. wish that it happened at a more. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I went there. I would, and even when I went to Paris at that time, I was like, "Are we sure we want to do this right now?" <laughs> There's this virus, it's spreading. And, you know, Paris had a lockdown that was like super severe. It they was pretty intense, yeah. City. Yeah, it was like a curfew almost, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was like a curfew lock-in. Everyone knew you couldn't even leave your apartments, basically. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it was a really horrible time for this to happen, but um, I have no regrets about the project. I love doing it. It was super fun. It sounds like a fun thing to do, for sure. Especially, you know, like, I don't know how much crossover there is there, which, you know, if you think about it, it sounds like it's kind of close to the, you know, visual arts and all of that, that I, I, I'm not aware that it, there's actually a lot of crossover. I mean, you know, you see the creations of, I don't know, Alexander McQueen or something in a museum, for sure. You see that. But yeah. you never really, almost never see 
what is the influence of the visual arts happening right now, especially, you know, contemporary art, jumping into the, the fashion well, the thing, world. Mm-hmm. The thing that's really funny to me, Marx, is that um, when you look at a guy like Cause, you right. look at Cause, and you see Cause has become like this kind of like king of the auction house right now, this sort of king of the art world. Right. And he came right out of fashion. And like, I am the opposite. I am like a guy who is just trying to come out of the art world. And somehow I landed in the fashion world and it like exploded. It really did explode. It was so ironic. The irony of this whole thing is so funny and fantastic to me. It is really one of the biggest gifts that's ever sort of come to me is getting to sort of be seeing an, an interview of me in Vogue magazine <laughs> is just something I just, I mean, it's hysterical. I, I love it. I love the irony of this whole thing. So. That is awesome because, it, and then you go to the window and say like, there's no irony here. <laughs> it's like a meta irony. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh Perfect. man, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> it also, you know, talks about how open you are to like really try to collaborate, I guess, and 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 in, in many other ways, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's something that I think, you know, if you're like a purist or something like that, you know, takes yourself too seriously, then you miss out on some opportunities that can yeah. come out. Mm-hmm. Well, to me, it was also really funny, like, you know, I, I mean, I made a painting. It was like, I struggled with this painting. I was struggling with the painting. And then I wrote on the painting, my own worst enemy. Right. And they saw that painting and they wanted to collaborate on all this clothing that said my own worst enemy. Yeah. Yeah. And like my wife said to me at some point, why would anybody want to have a shirt that says my own worst (laughs) enemy on it? (laughs) And I said, you don't understand fashion at all <laughs> right <laughs> exactly exactly you're like if you if you if you don't get it please stay that way just stay that way <laughs> it's so hysterical uh, but she's absolutely right i mean i absolutely you know i agree with her but it's for like sure. there was there was so much it's like i don't know what it is yeah. but there is so much sort of humor and irony in some of the things that I kind of put on canvas and paper that doesn't really seem that way when I'm writing it, but then it just changes. Like when you put it on Instagram, when you put it on a shirt, when you put it on a bag and, uh, it's kind of, it's really thrilling to me because I really do think the origin story for almost all of my work is me tripping over myself in my studio and then sort of jotting down a note of self-deprecation and right. realization right. that turns into what the piece is. And I think it's always been shocking to me. It was shocking to me when I was writing these little stories about people in the art world without using their names and everything that there was a universality of people feeling like mm. they were also had experienced something not so different from that. Yeah. And I, mean, I was always uh, shocked that I was able to actually sell those pieces. People bought them, put them in their house. They like collected them, you know. For sure. Right. I would absolutely not trust anybody who would say that they have never felt that way. I mean, what, 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 like, who are you? <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, unless you're exactly. like, you know, if you like come from all the privilege in the world, maybe. Yeah. But I mean, who hasn't felt that way? I mean, it, I think it's, it strikes like a like a nerve there for like, you know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I like I don't ever trust. I never trust an artist who ever <laughs> says something like, well, you know, if you never get to that point in your career where you think, oh, my God, I just got to stop doing this. This is just the uh, it's a mis it's you know, this is. I, I am making a huge mistake. I've made a mistake. This is bad. Artists <laughs> who never come to that point, it's hard to trust them. I, But yeah, at the same I mean, time, when I look at a guy like, like, I'll just throw Jeff Koons out there. Sure. Does Jeff Koons really ever have a, you know, like a moment of like crisis in yeah. his work with, mm -hmm. you know, in his work? I, he, he is a very good editor. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. no crisis in the work. I put the, uh, my work is, is about the crisis. I mean, that's sort of yeah. what I like to. I think it's like a curated image as well, right? I think it has to do with uh, how much you actually care about yeah. that kind of branding, right? It's a branding piece. I'm not trying to denigrate Kuhn so much. No. I'm just saying that there just doesn't seem to be like this... Uh, Like self-actualization is not yeah. what the work is about. That all takes place maybe on a therapist's couch somewhere else. Yeah, maybe, right. I don't know. I guess in a more serious note, it's part of what you're, like, you know, thinking and it's part of like the, whatever you want to call it, like perhaps process or whatever, you know, it's a, it, it cannot be left aside or ignored, you know, all those thoughts that you have in terms of like, you know, what am I doing with my life? And like, yeah. you know, what else am I trying to achieve? Things like that. I think, you know, some people decide not to share that, you know, I think it's just matter of like choosing what, what again, it's going to be your presentation to the public, you know? Right. I, I do like to say, and it's not necessarily true. It's, there's a rather disingenuous statement. But I like to say that my artwork is about a character mm. that I am presenting to the public, and it's not really me. I like to tell people that, oh, no, that's not, <laughs> I'm, but really there is no character. <laughs> it's these, you know, but I mean, I like to think that there is this like, you know, well, it's not really, I mean, I just, I make fun of myself. I'm self-deprecating, but it's just for the show. Right. right. But, you know. When I, I'll tell you one other thing, and then I, I, I'll just say one other thing. When I went to art school, mm -hmm. this is kind of a, um, I mean, this is kind of a, a something that you, I feel, anyway, I went to art school. I remember I was a painting teacher, came in my studio in my graduate school and said, so who do you like? Who, influ who are your influences? Who are you kind of modeling yourself out? Yeah. And at that time, this was back in 1986, I said, Woody Allen. Right. Because right. at that time, Woody Allen was making Manhattan, Hannah and her sisters. And yeah. uh, he was making, he was making Zelig. He was making movies that were super good at that time. Yeah. But the thing about the reason why I bring up that Woody Allen thing is because in a lot of ways, that's what I understood about him was that there was like this, caricature of Woody Allen that was the subject mm -hmm. of his movies. Mm -hmm. Now it turns out that Woody Allen's a very complicated, fucked up guy yeah. who we're not supposed to talk about anymore. But yeah. that kind of model has a lot to do with how I've approached being an artist. Right. Just right. 
I didn't even know how I was doing it back in 1986, 87, but yeah. I said it and it still resonates now. And I kind of developed in that kind of way into being someone who uses this caricature of, as right. a foil to be able to make statements to the world resonate and have meaning and humor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in a one way or the other, I mean, even let's say that 100% is a character, right? Let's say that 100% you're like are able to achieve that separation or whatever. It still came from you. Like It comes from somewhere right. in you, right? And so right. like a, at least the thought is there, you know? So I think that people that can actually are able to separate that, they work really hard to create a branding, you know? And, and then so that you don't match them together, yeah. you know? It's interesting that when you get asked that question from from perhaps your teachers or, or professors, um, you, you don't choose like another artist. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying. It's yeah. kind of funny. There's a publication. I don't know if you edited or you produced it. And it's called um, Because I Am Not Richard Prince. <laughs> oh, I know. I made it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you made it. So, yeah. so It was a print. So... Um, the body of work, is that something that people actually talk to you about? Like perhaps the similarities or, you know, perhaps also using text as a vehicle. Yeah, back that I made that book. I made a book uh, mm -hmm. that also said of that show because I'm not Richard Prince. So uh, back in like say, mid 2000, early, you know, first decade of the 2000s. Right. Uh, the aughts. I guess. Um, yeah, I was starting to show a lot and doing a lot of art fairs. I was showing with a gallery in Paris and a gallery in Belgium and uh, in New York. And, um, you know, I was showing those. I was leaving the stories behind and getting into like sort of writing captions on paintings. Right. Ink drawings and paintings and making paintings and other things. And uh, making work about California, making work. I never really thought of Richard Prince. Mm -hmm. as like the person who was influencing me if right. anything my influence my the people i speak to in my own art are west coast conceptualists oh. even people in canada like rodney graham or like uh, there's just like this other universe of people even people like uh, you know uh, obviously there's some ruche and some mm -hmm. other people but i kept on hearing from critics from people mm -hmm. that there was this Richard Prince kind of connection right. which I never really cared about. But then this art dealer said to yeah. me, Oh, David, you know, your work, it's so much like Richard Prince. How come you can't charge his prices? <laughs> And I said to him, well, because you're not Larry Gagosian right. or Barbara Gladstone, who was showing, uh, who was showing, Uh, Richard Prince at the time before she moved to Gagosian. And then that became the essence for this print. Right. But the funny part was that I ended up, the guy I show with in Paris brought that print to FIOC, the big art fair in Paris. Yeah. And they produce a big catalog. This is like 2000 and, and uh, 2012 or something. They produce a big catalog for the art fair. And in it, they reproduce a different piece from each gallery. And he had submitted that print to be submitted for the um, for the catalog. And right. his name is Laurent Godin. 
So when you're going through the dialogue and you get to Barbara Gladstone and then you turn the page and it's my print with what with uh, Laurent Godin and then you turn the page again and it's Larry Gagosian. It was so funny. It was like just a smack back at the art world. Right. And and, you know, like I have always there's a certain part of my work, even though I don't think that it's um, the, the centerpiece of my work, but there's a certain part of my work that is really into the institutional critique. I like the institutional critique because I like to make comments about the inequities, about the failings, about the, you know, how it's built on things that crumble very quickly. And so I really enjoy making work about the critical critique. And that like, almost like a joke played on the people at FIOC was that there I was between Larry Gagosian and Barbara Gladstone, a joke that mentions both of their names in the print crossed out Barbara Gladstone and then Larry Gagosian is actually the the name. So, you know, it was a fun, and that, you know, of course it doesn't endear me to Jerry Saltz or the rest of the critics, but that's, that's how I roll. No, I mean, you know, you know what? I mean, like it's kind of the same argument that they probably have for everything they do in terms of like, you know, I'm, I'm not here to make friends. I'm, I'm here to like, you know, be honest and be real. That's the same thing that you do, man. I mean, like, and you have to take, whatever comes with that, right? I mean, like, it's not going to be fun for them. Right. Maybe they'll start respecting you because of that, you know? So it, it it's kind of like that game Maybe. of... Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, honestly, like, uh, that was the, really the best thing about what you were talking, asking me about the Celine thing. The best thing that happened to me with that whole Celine thing was it was like I reached totally around the art world and put myself in another place ahead of like further up the the ladder. Right. Where there would have been all this resistance I was getting. And it was like, I, it was just a really fascinating thing to see how, because I had been denied a lot of things because of different people's attitudes. And then when I went to the art, to a, a place outside of the art world, which is actually by most standards, cooler than the art world because right. it's fashion. Right. I got total approval. And I thought that was just like <laughs> hilarious, hilarious yeah. kind of yeah. thing that yeah. happened. It's... So, you know, I, I am, I feel very positive about that. Very like gifted by That's that. That's awesome. It was a gift. It's important to feel like you're going through these experiences and, and, and opportunities light, you know? It's like, it's not what you're trying to do. You're not trying to make fashion, right? So if there's an opportunity, it's like, well, right. why not? You know, it's like, <laughs> for sure. Right, right. So. Like I like to say, I was like in the, uh, well, I was, I was in Kmart, which is like Canadian tire. I was yeah. in there buying my t-shirts when the phone rang and it was <laughs> Celine. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to buy your Gildans? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Oh, that's fantastic. You should you should let them know that. You should you should actually make up a, a print of that. They probably they probably put it in there. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh man. Hey, uh, this has been a blast. Do you think we did it? You think we uh we yeah. accomplished it? That's great. It's great talking to you, Mark. It's great to see you again. Oh, it was fantastic. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And uh, yeah, good to see you too. Thank you very much. It's great talking to you. We'll talk soon. All right. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye bye. Thanks. All right. That was me talking to David Kramer. Wasn't that nice? 
I think I think you felt that. I think you felt that. So thanks again for listening and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Special thanks to Arcadio Lands for composing the music and for mastering this episode. The beautiful visual design that you can see on Instagram uh, and also on Facebook was done by Victor Garibay, Gary. And obviously, huge thanks to David Kramer again for his time and for sharing all his stories with me. I'm Marks, and I will talk to you soon. Stay safe out there. Cheers. Cheers.